So generally speaking, I don't watch musicals, but there are a few exceptions to that rule. And one of the exceptions is Les Mis. Now, besides the fact that the music of Les Mis or Les Miserables, besides the fact that the music is beautifully written, it's also just a phenomenal story. It's a story that transcends genre. In it, the protagonist, Jean Valjean, is an ex-convict who's being pursued through Paris by police inspector Javert. The scene that always gets me is towards the beginning when Jean Valjean is looking for a place to stay for the evening, but he's refused by the innkeepers because of his criminal past. Now, as he prepares to sleep on a stone bench outside of a church, the church door opens and a woman directs him to the house of the bishop. He's treated to a warm meal and given a place to stay for the night. But Jean Valjean's response to the generosity of his hosts is not a response of gratitude. In fact, he actually steals silverware from the house. Later on, he's caught by the police with the silverware and they bring him back to the bishop's house. Now in that moment, all the bishop has to do is say, yes, that silverware is mine and he stole it. But that's not actually what happens. The bishop does the unthinkable. He says, yes, it's my silverware. But then he looks at Jean Valjean and he says, but you forgot something. Take these silver candlesticks as well and be on your way. It's a marvelous picture of grace, a guilty criminal, not only not getting what he deserved, but actually receiving more than he asked for. You know, grace is always surprising in that way. With grace, it's always a different outcome than what we might have normally expected. And the greater the guilt of the offender, the more surprising and glorious it is when grace is extended by the offended party. Now, as remarkable as this example from Les Mis is, we're going to see today that it doesn't even come close to comparing to the grace of God that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you would think that everybody would receive the grace of God as good news. But the truth is that grace, when truly understood, is actually offensive to most people. Most people are opposed to being on the receiving end of God's grace. Now, that sounds crazy, right? Who, who wouldn't want to receive grace from God? But here's why it's offensive. It's offensive for at least two reasons. It's because of what grace presupposes. The first thing that grace presupposes is that you're actually guilty, that there's actual guilt. 
that you're in the wrong. We are so self-righteous by nature that one of the hardest things for us to do is even admit that we're guilty of anything. And so that's why we tend to minimize our sin or come up with euphemisms, catchy, cute little sayings to describe our sin. Why else call it by another name if not to avoid facing what it really is? The other thing that grace presupposes is that we're in debt to the one who is extending the grace to us. And that is extremely offensive, especially in a place like D.C. You know, we live in the, the mecca of achievement through personal effort. The very thought of anything resembling a handout is extremely offensive to the person who thinks that they've pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. And so grace is offensive. And yet, as offensive as it may be, if we're going to relate to God as he has revealed himself in Scripture, it must be on his terms and not ours. And so in our text today, we're going to see a demonstration of grace that blows Les Mis out of the water. I want to encourage you to turn to Hosea chapter 14. Hosea chapter 14, it's in the Old Testament. It's after the book of Daniel. Hosea chapter 14. And I'm going to read starting at verse 1. This is God's word. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the, vine, the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, 
and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for your word. We thank you that you have condescended, you've, you've stooped down to tell us your thoughts. Father, we have uh, just been singing, and as we sang, we prayed that, that you would cause our faith to rise, that you would cause our eyes to see your majestic love and your authority. Father, would you do that now? Uh, would, would, would you speak to us through your word and remind us of your extravagant, surprising grace found in Jesus Christ? And Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would use the word of God to reveal the Son of God and that you would do it for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. I want us to notice the very first word that we see in chapter 14. That word says, return. And it is a command. Now, in order to understand that command to return, we need to consider where we are at this point in redemptive history. Hosea was a prophet who prophesied during the 8th century BC. So this would be after David and Solomon, a couple hundred years later. Uh, the kingdom of Israel has been divided, and so you have the northern kingdom, uh, known as Israel or Ephraim in Hosea, and then you have the southern kingdom, known as Judah. Hosea's ministry was to the northern kingdom, Israel. And here's what we know about that time period. We know that it was a time of political corruption. It was a time of material prosperity. It was a time of rampant immorality. And it was also a time of constant religious activity political corruption, material prosperity, rampant immorality, and religious, constant religious activity. And so all of these things were intertwined together in a toxic mix. And so this is the context into which Hosea is speaking. Now, many of us are familiar with the story of Hosea. As God looks at Israel and how they're behaving, it's as though God says, I need a picture to describe Israel's unfaithfulness. So what would be the most outrageous violation of a sacred covenant imaginable? And so he tells Hosea in chapter 1, verse 2, he commands Hosea to marry a prostitute and then to remain faithful to her no matter how often she strays. And so God is saying, Israel, this is what you are like. 
an unfaithful wife running into the arms of other lovers. The problem with unfaithfulness is that it brings about the judgment of God. And so that's what we see throughout the book of Hosea. Israel is being warned about the coming judgment of God because of their sin. And so like I said earlier, grace presupposes guilt. And so in order to understand the grace that we see in chapter 14, and there's a lot of grace in chapter 14, but in order for us to truly understand it, we, it must be seen against the backdrop of the guilt in the first 13 chapters. And so what is Israel, what exactly is Israel guilty of? And I want to encourage you just to turn back to chapter 1 of Hosea, and we're just going to walk through um, quickly what Israel is guilty of. In chapter 1, verse 2, we see that Israel is guilty of forsaking the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 5, Israel is guilty of acting shamefully. In chapter 2, verse 13, they're guilty of forgetting God. In chapter 4, verse 2, Israel is guilty of swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. In chapter 4, verse 6, they're guilty of rejecting knowledge and forgetting God's law. In chapter 4, verse 14, the brides are guilty of committing adultery. The men are guilty of having been with prostitutes. In chapter 5, verse 11, they're guilty of, of being determined to go after filth. In chapter 6, verse 7, Israel is guilty of transgressing the covenant. In chapter 7, verse 13, Israel is guilty of straying from God and guilty of rebelling against God and guilty of speaking lies against God. In chapter 9, verse 9, they're guilty of having deeply corrupted themselves. In chapter 12, verse 1, they're guilty of multiplying falsehood and violence. And in 13, verse 2, it's, it's, it's almost as though the prophet has run out of, out of ways to describe their guilt. He just says they're guilty of sinning more and more. And so the question isn't what have they done to bring about this judgment of God. It's what sin haven't they committed? And remember, this sin is sin against a holy God. This is the God whose eyes are too pure to even behold evil. The God who loves righteousness and hates wickedness. And so it really should come as no surprise at all that God is going to judge them for their sin. In light of this, God's judgment is to be expected. <laughs> you know, when we look at that description in verses, in chapters 1 to 13, I would expect the first word of chapter 14 to be depart, as in depart from me, you workers of iniquity. But that's not what we see. 
we see grace. He doesn't say depart. He says return. This is extravagant, surprising grace. And I want us to notice three things connected to God's grace in this passage. And I want to see if um, if we can notice any surprises when it comes to the grace of God. And so the first thing I want us to notice is a plea for repentance. Secondly, a promise of restoration. And then third, a proclamation of righteousness. A plea for repentance, a proclamation of restoration. I'm sorry, a promise of restoration and a proclamation of righteousness. First, a plea for repentance. Verse 1, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. We've seen the dark backdrop, the lying, the murder, the prostitution, the stealing, the corruption, acting shamefully, and yet God says, return. That's another way of saying, repent. Turn from your old way of sin and turn to God. And here's what I love. God doesn't just say repent or return, but he actually removes all the obstacles to repentance. He removes all of the arguments against repentance. Do you see that in verse 1? You see how he removes the argument against repentance? It's found right there in that little word for in verse 1. You see, God anticipates that there's going to be someone out there who would say, I can't return to God or I can't come to God because of my sin. My sin is too great because I've stumbled. But God says, you've stumbled, therefore return. And so, so the stumbling itself is actually God's incentive to come back to him. He takes away the reason for despair and he makes it an argument for hope. And because of the work of Christ, this command isn't only for Israel, this command to return. And it doesn't matter what you've done. God says, return. No one is too far out of the reach of God's grace to save. You see, this is why grace is so surprising, because grace receives the worst of sinners. The Apostle Paul, former blasphemer and persecutor of the church, put it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 15 and 16. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Do you hear the same line of reasoning there? Paul is saying, I'm the worst of sinners, and I receive mercy for that reason. Being the worst of sinners 
is not an obstacle to coming to God, but it's the incentive for coming to God. And so do you see yourself as a great sinner this morning? In the words of our text, have you stumbled because of your iniquity? Well, for that reason, God says, return. He says, return. And grace is surprising in that way. Here's another surprise. (laughs) The grace in this passage is only for the stumblers. (laughs) It's for the stumblers and the stumblers alone. (laughs) It's only for those who see themselves as having iniquity or actual sins, who see themselves as falling short of the glory of God. Has anyone stumbled this week? This month, this year, today, well, then the grace in this passage is for you. But if you're not a Christian and and you don't, don't see yourself as having stumbled or having iniquity, there's no comfort for you in this passage. Even Jesus, after quoting from the book of Hosea, says in Matthew 9, 13, he said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so God removes the arguments against repentance. Somebody might say, well, I see God telling me to return, but I don't know how. I don't know what to do. Well, the Lord is so gracious that not only does he give the command to repent, but he tells you how. And we see it right here in the Lord's instructions. Verse Verse 2, he says, take with you words and return to the Lord. Now, again, we see how surprising grace is here because what we might expect here is for God to, to provide a long list of religious do's and don'ts when it comes to returning. But that's not what he says. In verse 2, he simply says, take with you words. Well, well, well wait a second. Take with you words? That's it? After the lying? After the murder, the adultery, the prostitution? All he's saying is take with you words? Yeah, that's it. Why? Because the decisive thing in repentance is not the degree of sin that you've committed but the character of the one that you're returning to. This is about the Lord. This is about who he is, his grace, his mercy, his glory. You know, ever since Adam and Eve in the garden, our tendency has always been to run away from God when we sin. And this is foolish because not only, I mean, mean, it's not like we can actually outrun God anyway. But this grace is so surprising because even though God is the one who's offended and in sin, God is always the one, even even though it hurts people, even though people are offended by our sin, first and foremost, God is the one who is ultimately offended by all of our sin more than anybody. He's the offended party and he says, come. Come to me. I wonder how many of you were 
hesitant to even come to church today because of a sense of your own sin, your own guilt before God. God says, no, that's why you need to come to God because of that sin. Don't stay away. Come to the Lord. And how? How do we return? By prayer. Take with you words. You know, this, this is an Old Testament way of God saying, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Confess your sin to God. Confession is in view here. You don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to use fancy words. A humble heart before God acknowledging sin is of great worth to the Lord. The Lord loves to hear prayers that come from the broken and contrite heart. And just in case you don't know what to say, he tells you what to say in verse 2. He says, say to him, take away all iniquity. And that's where it has to start, right? The thing that has been the cause of the stumbling in verse 1, it must be removed in verse 2. And God is the only one who can take it away. And this is where the Lord Jesus Christ comes in. The passage uh, from Hosea that Jesus quoted in Matthew 19 that that I referenced, or Matthew 9 that I referenced earlier, Well, that passage comes from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, where God says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Remember the context of Hosea, a time of rampant immorality, at the same time, constant religious activity. It's as though God is saying, I don't need your religion If your heart is not right before me, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin anyway. No, the sacrifices that God commanded in the Old Testament were pointing to the ultimate sacrifice when Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross. And so that's why it says in Hebrews 9.26 of Jesus, it says, as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so in the gospel, what Jesus does is he comes and he lives the completely perfect life that none of us are able to live. And then he goes to the cross and on the cross, he suffers the weight. He bears the punishment, the full weight of the wrath of God in our place for our sins so that those who turn from their sin and simply look to God and say, God, take away all my iniquity, God has promised to give eternal life. He's promised to save from the wrath to come. Do you see the faith that's necessary to pray from the heart? To God, take away all my iniquity? I mean, first you have to believe that you actually have iniquity to be taken away. You also must believe that that God has both the power and the willingness to take it away. And then you must trust in the means that God has provided to take it away. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in no one else. 
For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And it's important that we notice the order here. You see, the first thing mentioned is take away all iniquity. That is the foundation for everything else that follows after that. So it's not, God, I'm going to do A, B, C, and D. I'm going to speak this way. I'm going to do that. And then, God, if you do that, if I do that, then please take it away. It's, it's I come to you empty-handed. Take it away, please. And now, in response, this is how I live. We see some specific fruits of repentance here at the end of verse 2. It says, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. That phrase, accept what is good, is a little unclear. It's translated in some translations as receive us graciously. It's either referring to God taking away sin by accepting the sacrifice that he provides, or it's a request to be received by God on the basis of his grace. Either way, those are both great things to pray. The one who is returning to the Lord. And then we see the the proper response of the one who turns to God and is forgiven. It literally says here that the calves of our lips. It's the, the, the offering of the fruit of our lips. The offering of praises to God. So you want to know how to return to the Lord? If you've strayed, come to him humbly, pray to him, receive, ask him to take away iniquity, receive his forgiveness, and then respond to God with praises. It's what we've been doing this morning. That's, that's, that's what we do when we, when we sing hymns. It's God has done this amazing thing for us in the gospel, and now what else is there to do but to respond to him, to break out into song, as it were, as though it were a musical or something? <laughs> Psalm 50, verse 23, puts it like this. It says, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. Hebrews 13, verse 15 says, through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And so we see that turning to God in this text includes praying to God, confessing our sin, trusting his provision for sin, responding with praise and thanksgiving. But we can't turn to God or turn to God without first turning away from some things. And we see this in verse 3. It says, Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. Assyria was the dominant world power at the time, and they were notoriously cruel in the way that they conquered territories and dragged their enemies into exile. So one of the things that Assyria would do was was to offer protection to other countries in exchange for monetary gifts and resources. And so in Israel's case, Israel 
was trusting in Assyria to keep Israel safe from Egypt. And horses in that verse is a reference to warfare. So this is kind of a contrast to what we see in a place like Psalm 20, verse 7, which says, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so whether it was other countries or themselves, the point is Israel was trusting in things other than God for their well-being. And they're saying part of the fruit of repentance is that we're going to turn away from that. We're going to turn away from trusting in anything other than God. It's part of repentance. What are you trusting in this morning? What is it or, or who is it that's giving you your ultimate sense of security and meaning this morning? Is it money? Is it your career? Is it your looks, your intelligence? Is it a spouse, your kids, your reputation, your position? Any number of candidates for things that we put our trust in. Well, whatever it is, if it's not God himself, the Lord is calling all of us to return, to return to him. And do you see the humility that's required to turn to God in this way? It says, in you, the orphan finds mercy at the end of verse three. The orphan. The, the, the person who is completely bankrupt and in no position to take care of themselves, that's the one who finds mercy before God. And so we've seen the plea for repentance. Let's also notice God's promise of restoration. We see this starting in verse 4. The Lord says, I will heal their apostasy or their backsliding. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. Again, we see that grace is surprising. We've seen all these things in the first couple of verses that God has told Israel to do, and yet he goes on to say that he's the one who will heal their apostasy. So so which is it? Is it the sinner doing the returning, or is it God doing the healing of the apostasy? answer is yes. Yes. God gives the command, and at the same time, he's the one who empowers us to obey the command. If God himself doesn't address the apostasy, there's no hope for Israel. And yet, if Israel doesn't return to God, they'll never be healed. And so the point is that in grace, it's always God who takes the initiative. It's how it was with Israel, and it's how it is with us. And then it says in verse 4, it says, I will love them freely. Man, I I could spend a lot of time here, but, but the point is, is that for grace to be grace, it must be given freely. That is, without external constraints. It, it can't be demanded because if it's demanded, then we're not actually talking about grace anymore. 
You know, our culture does not understand grace at all. And, and you really see it whenever a, a major news story dealing with justice comes up. You know, I'm, I'm born and raised in Philadelphia, a lifelong Eagles fan. And so if you sense any cynicism at all, that's probably why. There's two things that you can guarantee as an Eagles fan. One is that they won't be winning the Super Bowl this year. And then two is that one of their players will probably be involved in some kind of major controversy. And so we saw this recently last week when one of their players, Riley Cooper, was caught on camera yelling a derogatory racial slur directed at African Americans. Now, Riley Cooper is white and most of his teammates are black. And when he was confronted with what he did by the media, he seemed to be very apologetic. But there were two statements that were made that really, really struck me on this issue. One was by his teammate, Michael Vick, who's had his own issues. But, but he, said, he said that he forgave Riley Cooper and he gave as his rationale for forgiving him, he said, everybody deserves a second chance. And then the second statement was from Cooper himself, who was asked about his teammates forgiving him. And he said, I didn't ask them to forgive me because that would put it on them. I want to take the responsibility for it. And so he, he's basically saying that he wanted, he, he wanted to demonstrate through his actions that he was deserving of forgiveness. And he was commended by the media for saying that, but it goes to show that he does not understand biblical grace. The point of biblical grace is that forgiveness is not deserved. Everyone doesn't deserve a second chance. When you talk about what we deserve, we're not in the category of grace. We're in the category of justice. It's justice that says you get this for what you have done. God's grace is extravagant. When Adam and Eve sinned, God didn't say, oh, everybody deserves a second chance. It's not what happened. He said, the day you eat from this tree, you shall die. And so God loving freely, what that means is that, that God reserves the right to extend it or to withhold it according to his good pleasure. This is the meaning of Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, when God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I show mercy. You ever think about that? You know, Israel wasn't any more or less sinful than the Assyrians or Egypt. In fact, you can make the argument that they were actually more sin sinful because they had more knowledge of the true God. But God doesn't show Assyria, with the exception of Nineveh and Jonah, which is an amazing story of repentance. But outside of that, God doesn't show Assyria the same grace that he shows to Israel. He doesn't show that same grace to Egypt. It's because God is free. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. And so if it's going to truly be grace, it must be in a way that deals with the demands of God's justice. And this is what God says. He says, I will love them freely. Why? 
for my anger has turned away from them. God's anger must be addressed. You know, our society tends to view God strictly as loving with no anger whatsoever. Whoever that God is, it's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible loves freely. He, he, he enables himself to love freely because his anger has been taken away. And is there any way, any place where we see this more clearly than at the cross of Jesus Christ? Have we ever seen such dying, sacrificial love juxtaposed right next to fierce, unrelenting justice, wrath, and anger against sin? They meet together perfectly at the cross. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, that is, the the wrath-absorbing sacrifice or substitute for our sins. God can love us freely because his anger has been turned away from us, and his anger has been turned away from us because it was poured out on Jesus Christ. In verses 5 through 7, we see God's uh, describing Israel's restoration uh, in terms that, that they would have been familiar with but may not be as meaningful to us. In his commentary on this passage, James Boyce explains some of the metaphors that we see like this in, in verses 5 to 7. It says, uh, The last promise is couched in a series of images. The judgment of which the earlier chapters speak is harsh and sudden. Ruin results. But from the ruins, the people would again begin to grow under God's divine presence and blessing. God would be like the early dew of morning, quiet but effective. When God says that his blessing will result in the growing of blossoms like the lily, he is saying that he will restore beauty to the nation. Israel was beautiful once, but sin is ugly, and sin had ruined Israel. When God speaks of sending down roots, like on the great cedars of Lebanon, he is saying that he will restore strength to the nation. When God speaks of the splendor of the olive tree, he's saying that he will restore the nation's value. The splendor of the olive is oil. It was highly valuable in ancient times. Boyce continues, when grace, when God speaks of the fragrance of the cedars of Lebanon, he's saying that he will again make that nation a delight. The shade of a tree, the flourishing of a field of grain, the luxuriant blossoming of a vine. It's a way of talking about abundance. Does the scope of this promise surprise us? It shouldn't because God is the source of every good gift in all fruitfulness, end quote. And so these images would have taken the original readers back to the Garden of Eden. For us, it should cause us to ultimately look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. But please know that God 
can and does restore in this life. He restores that which is broken. He can can restore a broken sexual past. He can restore a broken marriage. There's nothing too hard for God. He is a restorer. Finally, I want us to see his proclamation of righteousness in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. And so the question is, what should life look like on the other side of this grace? How should we now live having received this grace? And again, the answer is surprising. With all the talk about God's grace and loving freely, the temptation might be to think, well, since God is the one who's doing everything, then I guess I can just live however I want. Of course, the New Testament answer to this is found in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. simply says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means, or, or God forbid. And that's what we see in this text. After lavishing Israel with grace, he reminds them of his holiness and their dependence on him. Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? God is holy. He says, it is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. This call to dependence on God for fruitfulness is reminiscent of another call given in the New Testament. Listen and see if you can hear the echoes of Hosea 14 in these words of Jesus. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do what? What can you do apart from me? Apart from Jesus, nothing. Can do nothing. And so once we come to God by grace, we need to keep coming to him in order that we might walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. And so our text ends with a warning in verse 9. Whoever's wise, let him understand these things. Whoever's discerning, let him know them. The ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Now, I wish I could say that Israel took heed to the warning, that they turned to God and were spared his judgment, but that's not what happened. In fact, within a few years of this prophecy, Assyria invaded Israel. And many died as a result of God's judgment. But as we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, these things were written down for our instruction. These things took place as examples for us. So what about you? 
What's keeping you from returning to God this morning? In his classic work on holiness, J.C. Ryle said, Surely a Christian should be willing to give up anything which stands between him and heaven. Surely a Christian should be willing to give up anything which stands between him and heaven. So will you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are a God who has determined to heal our apostasy. You're a God who has determined to love us freely in Christ. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his death. We thank you for his resurrection. And we pray, Father, that you would give us all the grace to continually turn away from sin and embrace the Savior. And would you do it for the glory of your great name? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.